Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine, located on the unceded ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok people of present-day Marin County. Each week, we feature a new interview, narrated essay, or story, exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. This month, we're taking time to rest in the ashes with five stories from chapter two of our new print edition, Living with the Unknown. When so much has been stripped away, how do we continue to be present with that which remains? How do we bear witness to ruin? We begin with the sudden disappearance of the Bogong moth in Alpine, Australia. As writer Rebecca Giggs considers how very small beings are often responsible for vast surges of light. She follows the rapidly vanishing trail of the Bogong on a journey from superabundance to apocalyptic end. The moths, when they came, were said to appear first like sea fog massing above the ocean. Lighthouse keepers along the southeastern edge of Australia warned of beacons so darkly swarmed that on-water navigators doubted their bearings. Ferry boats were burdened by thousands, wings a blur. Some moths hung in clusters off the precipitous coastal cliffs, living icicles, dripping with more moths. The moths as a myriad moved in. At nightfall, they swept over the suburbs in clouds, wrote one reporter for a Sydney tabloid, The Sun. Descending into tea trees and turpentine gums in Gosford, the seething of the moths gave the impression of bow-shaking winds when all else was motionless. If the moths' light-seeking caused disruption in the darkness, their urge to seek shelter when the dawn broke made them a more invidious presence yet. So many of their oily bodies were crushed on train tracks that slowdowns were mandated to stop locomotives slipping from the rails. They jammed the circuitry of elevators, spoiled gatherings. At a garden party at Government House in the inland capital of Canberra, every iced cake was seen to be decorated with moths. The moths entered people's houses, They crept behind upright pianos into radio sets betwixt the slats of Venetian blinds. They got between the mattress and the bedsheets and huddled in the pockets of dress suits. In kitchens, gutted fish were found to have bellyfuls of moths. If a light was switched off, hundreds of tiny arrow shapes might fan out from beneath paintings hung on the wall. One year, churchgoers counted 80,000 moths on the windows of St Thomas's Prayer House in North Sydney. Services were cancelled for seven days, the building sealed, while the moths congregated under the eaves. People reached for words like visitation, marvel. The less enraptured said plague. These were migratory moths called bogong moths, and through the early 20th century, few people could say with confidence where they came from. Noiseless messengers, 
the Argus newspaper deemed the Bogong moths in 1916. Noiseless messengers sent forth to flicker ghost-like through space and collect the news of other worlds. Truth was, the moths had their origins underground. After frail frosts and when the early spring was wet, great throngs of moths emerged from pupae in the soils of lowland southern Queensland and in western and northwestern New South Wales. Stirred by some ephemeral cue, temperature, day length, barometric pressure, the moths took off, and though no single individual in their generation had ever made the journey, and while each moth's brain is scarcely a speck, the moths, their bearings imbued with instinct, set out to travel for over 1,000 kilometres. Some years were sparser than others, but when conditions favoured the moths, there could be over 4 billion on the wing. Passing through the rail yards of Newcastle, they obscured electric signals. As far south as Miribu North in Gippsland, men complained of needing to move agglomerations of moths off the paddocks by the shovelful. Lacking the necessary mouthparts to chew leaves, they did not skeletonise plant life as locusts do. Instead, the moths relied on floral sugars to power them supping thin streams of nectar via their proboscises, along with lerp, a kind of honeydew that's extruded by louses. Each moth could only ingest a skerrick of sweetness, but they were so numerous that apiarists nonetheless found that they had to sustain their bees on syrup after the moth front had passed by, taking with it much of the nourishment otherwise found in flowering yellow box, red box, grevillea. Many moths were killed by nightjars and frog mouths, by high winds, by sizzling up in light fixtures and by slapping hands. But there always seemed to be more to come. They were impervious to knockdown sprays. Any attempt at sweeping them from a surface left behind black pencil marks. In Dubbo, 1919, the moths destroy the happiness of many a domestic circle and by their dying help to increase the cost of living. Removing moths from the home was nearly impossible. One might as soon have tried to net a mist and tow it back out to sea. Yet not that long after they'd arrived, the moths disappeared from the cities, like a nightmare dissipated on waking. Where had the moths gone to? From at least the end of the glacial period, the moths have taken their leave every year to go into hiding in the Australian Alps. The bogongs chase the cold. Their meta population, which has several reservoirs inland of the dividing range, funnels together to seek refuge from the hottest weather of summer by climbing up above the tree line into chilled crevices and grottos in the high-altitude scree of the Snowy Mountains, the Victorian Alps, and the Brindabellas. When they finally enter their encampments in the granite and basalt, the moths settle on rock faces in a tessellating pattern. Each moth, jigsaw piece, tucks its head under the hind wings of the one before it, 
until there's a wide brocade of moths that can extend for maybe 80 metres squared or more. If they blanket the interior of a cave, it can come to feel like a softly padded cell. The moths enter a torpor called estivation. Estivation is the opposite of hibernation. It's done to circumvent the swelter, not the snow. The moths are mostly motionless. Intermittently, they jiggle their wings. A handful might take a turn in the open air each night, moving as on an orrery, before settling into their long tranquility again. Bogongs live much longer than the average moth, between eight and nine months. They will stay there, in the icy dark, across the turn of the new year, before returning to breed, lay eggs and die where they were born, in the cracking clays far away. The Jaitmatang, Gunakonai and Tungurung peoples knew of this migration, and had known since long before European invasion. The moth's name, Bogong, comes from the southeastern indigenous language groups. Bangong denotes a moth of the mountains, or the mountains of the moths, and the brown colour that envelops both. The estivation of the moths was the incitement for a pilgrimage of Indigenous Australians into the lowlands and foothills of the Alps, land that was cyclically inhabited by the traditional owners, who've been its continuous custodians and in its care for all of the time span the dreaming encloses. At several waypoints along the moth's passage, people stupefied the insects with smoke and cooked them in coalless fires before grinding their bodies into a paste and fashioning long-lasting patties. For the moth hunters, bogongs were a seasonal cornerstone of their diet. The custom was so widespread that it changed the appearance of the landscape. The ground was rumpled, like a quilt, where fire pits were dug year after year. Significant law, intergroup consultation and ceremony are associated with the occupation of the high plains at moth harvest time. Dispossession and colonial violence disturbed these practices. For centuries, the Bogong moths streamed back into these caves, slept and vanished again when the weather cooled. The hands of the moth hunters illustrated facets of the feast on rock walls. Later came scientists from research institutions and universities to study the moths across the tours of several summits. The scientists noted that the moths smelled sweet, like molasses, when they arrived, and thereafter awful, like compost. Then, in the summer of 2017-18, the bogong moths, prolific as they had been for all the years prior, vanished more completely. Where once there had been hundreds of thousands of the insects, a juggernaut, a moving nimbus, now the night air stood empty. On Mount Morgan and Mount Jinjera, no moths. A cave long favoured by moths on a boulder outcrop near South Ramshead in the Kosciuszko main range saw only a smattering, very deep, in the far reaches Likewise, known habitat on Mount Buffalo. The next summer, a single live moth was found on Mount Morgan. 
three moths made it to Mount Jinjera. With a note of terror, scientists reported that, within a few short years, Bogong numbers had declined by 99.5%. This past December, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, IUCN, formally listed the Bogong moth as endangered. What has happened to the moths, and what will happen in the mountains if they are not restored, has much to tell us about how we envision the manifold crises we are connected to, and the scale on which they occur. I had begun reading about the moths at a time when we were compelled to stay indoors, to wait out a state of semi-dormancy in lockdown. It started with a dream, the dream that everyone seemed to be having that spring, of a billowing swarm of insects. In mine, the insects were seen from far off, a murmuration knotting and unknotting on the horizon, banking into mountainous peaks that shivered and collapsed. At a distance, I registered only curiosity towards them, but then the insects started to collect together, to concentrate, and with clear intent, cascade down upon the buildings of the city, into the streets. A horrible fear gripped me. Long minutes after waking, I could still feel the prickling of legs and wings landing all over my skin. Researchers who study dreams in the context of tragedy have observed that, since the outset of the pandemic, the imagery of insects has proliferated in sleeping minds. A virus is not a living organism, but we sometimes call it a bug. So the theory holds that bugs, of the arthropod kind, were a ready-made metaphor to visualise an invisible threat. It was easy to imagine an insect horde passing through people's heads on their pillows at night, like a storm traversing the eastern seaboard. Friends detailed variations on the theme, one in which ants overtook a classroom, one where a train carriage filled with hornets. My aunt dreamt that she was compelled to hold a single insect in her mouth as she moved through a crowd. Bitter, she said. Insects are bonded to ideas of mortality the world over, being both decomposers and natural transformers. Scarab beetles, a feature of funerary art in ancient Egypt. Jade cicadas, placed on the tongues of the deceased in the Han dynasty, to ease a person's transition into the afterlife. In the portraiture of pre-17th century Europe, the addition of a fly signalled that the subject was no longer alive. And the death's head hawk moth, of course, was a harbinger of epidemic illness and pestilence in France. To be touched by insects... To be traipsed by a lacewing or cup centipede in your palm has a morbid voltage, I think, as a foretoken of the moment the body ceases to sense the lightest contact, before it begins to turn in time to stillness, to ash on the wind, or dust on the touch-paper texture of a moth. After the curfew each evening I sat at home with the lamps on, watching whatever pinwheeled and buzzed against the glass. The borders were closed and a five-kilometre travel limit had been imposed, in addition to social distancing measures. Life seemed to have contracted down to very little. The window had become my public square, I thought. 
Could I get interested in what was there, within arm's reach, but out of touch? What visited the house and where it came from? Mostly, it was moths. Between me and the moon, moth after moth, unearthly, of various sizes. What I then knew about moths wouldn't run to more than a sentence or two. Night insects, yes. The idiom like a moth to a flame. Metamorphosis. Full stop. I found a guidebook with pictures online and scrolled through it, surprised to discover that what distinguishes moths from butterflies is not, as it transpires, their circadian habit. There are many day-flying moths. Dark-loving butterfly species populate the understories of rainforests in the country's north. Neither is the difference a question of drabness. Moths can be dotted with vivid iridescence, as if they dragged their wingtips through gasoline. There are green, blue, violet, pink, marigold and piebald moths. One is the bright orange of a traffic cone, another is banana yellow with blood-red eyeballs. In dense, low-lit woodlands, a few moth species have evolved to be almost completely transparent, a form of camouflage that means you don't so much see the insect as notice a ripple crossing the leaf litter. No finer details divide moths from butterflies. Both belong to the insect order Lepidoptera, but as a general rule, butterflies tend to have club-shaped antennae, where those of moths are more thready or look like wincy bottle brushes, an attribute that helps males pick up wafting pheromones during the breeding season. Even if they have narrow wings, moths are also more liable to have bristles on the surface between the fore and hind wing, a kind of Velcro that keeps all four wings aligned in motion, where butterflies do not. And, with some exceptions, butterflies are inclined to rest holding their wings sandwiched together vertically, where moths idle with their wings folded over their backs, like a collapsed tent, or held out flat in the manner of a rawsatch blot. In all its ingenuity, Evolution devised a single organism capable of living two lives at two speeds. First, the reclusive homebody, the caterpillar, a fleshy little digester in a vast empire of leaves, reliant on a plentiful, if low-nutrient, diet. Second, the winged moth, extremely mobile, but slight and soon to die. Moths either eat nothing during their maturity or are dependent on high-energy but scarcer foodstuffs, such as sap, nectar or juice. As a strategy, this duet of bodies has proved so successful that insects exploiting it have been around since the middle-late Jurassic. Specimens of the most primitive moths, the Micropterygidae, nine species of which live on in Australia, have been found clenched in amber from a time near to 200 million years ago, when they might have been fodder for flying dinosaurs. With such a deep evolutionary past to pull upon, Australian moths have diversified in stable environments into a plethora of specialists, sporting an array of colours, shapes and finishes. Some are marbled, some are woolly, some look like pieces of rotting wood, 
bird droppings or thorns. A moth that appears to be a splotch of turquoise mould reveals startling coral-coloured hindwings when it flies. Another trails streamers that baffle birds chasing it through the air. Here is a thorax, as purple and shiny as plum skin. Further on in the guidebook, a moth with a shaggy, bear-like countenance. Some roll their wings up to look like antlers. One seems pixelated, like a rasterized object in a video game. The smeared tones of another make it appear to have been photographed with an unfocused lens. Australia is home to between 20 and 30,000 moth species, almost as many as there are flowering plants. But only some 400 butterflies, a depauperate insect fauna. Some moths can only be told apart by their gait when walking, having either a waddling gait, a dancing gait, or moving quick, slow, quick, as in a foxtrot, a moth trot. A few engage in tactical mimicry, of wasps, of repellent beetles, of less edible moths that are their cousins. Some are furnished with hairs capable of triggering allergies and anaphylactic shock. Others would disappear if they happened to settle on an Art Nouveau carpet. Though the preponderance are herbivorous as larvae, there are also carnivores and frugivores. One moth tricks meat ants into carrying its caterpillars into their nests, where the larvae dine delicately on infant ants. Another has progeny that are aquatic, which subsist entirely of pondweed. Among this spellbinding Australian bestiary are some of the world's largest and heaviest moths. Cocinocera hercules, the Hercules moth, is found in northern Queensland and can grow to have a wingspan of 36 centimetres, the diameter of a car's steering wheel. Caterpillars of the Hercules moth feed in bleeding heart trees, and then they pupate for two years. The adult moth, which moves somewhat floppily like a dropped sun hat, lives only two days. Earlier this year, construction workers sinking the foundations for a school in Mount Cotton disturbed a giant wood moth, Endoxyla cinereus, the heaviest species yet identified by science, and not uncommon, though it's very rarely seen. A builder balanced it on the tip of a saw for a photograph, a moth the size of a catcher's mitt, its dusky legs dangling. The architecture of a flower, tailored for pollination by a specific insect, can provide clues about moths unmet in the wild. Take the star-shaped orchid, from which Charles Darwin inferred the existence of a then-unknown moth with an exceptionally long tongue needed to tap the bloom's nectary. Decades after Darwin's death in 1882, such a moth, a subspecies of the Congo moth, Ex Mugani predictor, was discovered with a ribboning proboscis almost three times the length of its body. The alliances between moths and other animals, as opposed to plants, are less well described, but as Lepidoptera elsewhere have evolved to drink the tears of river turtles, so too have unique dependencies emerged between moths and native species in Australia. There is a moth that lives in koala scat and one that feeds only in the nests of finches. 
Most memorable is the moth found in holes hollowed out by golden-shouldered parrots in the clay of abandoned termite mounds. There, this species lives off the excreta of nestlings. Though they function to keep the nest hygienic, the larvae have been known to spin cocoon masses that have blocked the entrance to the tunnel, leaving baby parrots trapped, a gothic demise for the birds. And as for bogongs? I remembered only that they were famously innumerable and transient. Having grown up on the west coast, I'd never seen one. Now I wanted to. I came to the entry for bogong moths in the guidebook. Agrotus infusa. The moth's Latinate name evokes infused fields. A head nod to the fact that bogongs pupate mostly in croplands, in chrysalises that are sepia and translucent, like varnish on a coffin. It was the right time of year to see one. Teak brown, with a fuzzy sort of cape extending over the back of its head and collar, its wing composed like a gabled rooftop when at rest. Bogongs are small, with a wingspan of about five centimetres, and they have reflective eyes, a feature that characterises members of the Nocturiae family, those moths Northern Americans call owlets, because their gleaming eyes bring to mind those of owls in the night. I read on and learnt that, with the aid of a magnifying lens, it might be possible to discern that male bogongs have antennae that resemble hair combs, though otherwise moths of this kind are unexceptional. Bogongs are easy to miss, easy to mistake. Save for this feature. On each wing are two pale dots, one slightly elongated like a comma. This is a moth adorned with semicolons. It was the semicolons that set me off in the end, a gesture to the branching nature of sentences and therefore of time, the possibility of subclauses running into the future, paths taken and not taken. The idea nestled into me. It was pleasant to think of something so small as a bogong moving out there from state to state when all else was grounded. More gratifying yet was the picture that came to me next of a stranger, their gaze alighting on a bogong moth, someplace a long way away. That person becoming verily engrossed, following the moth's mid-air helixing until it spiralled off into the dark. And then, in time, that same moth appearing to me, conveying the tiniest of contact highs, a vision of someone somewhere else, grown watchful of the insect life nearby. Maybe there was another woman that I'd never met, a woman who sat by her window even now, looking for something to wander into her reflection and bring her back to life. Perhaps she pressed her thumb against the cold surface and felt the faint vibrations of a moth squaring on the other side. If she thought of someone like me then, with the oval of her thumbprint fading... I hoped it made her feel that she was not alone. What was it that Virginia Woolf wrote in her famous essay addressing a moth flown to the window ledge of her study? Just as life had been strange a few minutes before, so death was now as strange.
On the natural exodus and ingress of insects, science was, for much of history, limited to guesswork. Invertebrates have proved hard to track for all the obvious reasons. Tininess, diffusion, difficulty telling kindred species apart, and two, because many insects shapeshift across their life cycle. Especially elusive have been noctivagrant or night-wandering insects, those that take advantage of a drop in thermal currents after sunset to wend their way by cover of darkness. Even in very large numbers, nocturnal insects can pass by unnoticed. One morning, the bugs are just here. They're everywhere. An old magic is frisking the shrubbery. No wonder that the thinkers of antiquity held that many insects were inert matter sparked to life. Aristotle and Pliny both suspected insects of being spawned by spontaneous generation from origins in fire, mud, dew, snow, and sand. Cicadas were fancied to issue from the spittle of cuckoos. A felicitous wind, most of all, was understand not just to transport scores of insects, but to fabricate them out of thin air. The fact of insect migration, not to mention the basic biology of metamorphosis, has since been well substantiated. But though researchers have known for over a century that insects undertake seasonal, long-distance travel, the misguided belief that such movement is entirely passive and dictated by the winds persisted into the 1980s. Some insects clearly are at the mercy of the weather. Persectania iwingi, for example, called the army worm, and also a pest, before it transmogrifies into a silken, buff-coloured moth. Persectania iwingi is routinely tossed by spring winds from South Australia across the Bass Strait, only to be saved from perishing in the ocean by the appearance of Tasmania, or the tussock-covered shores of Macquarie Island. But as the technology capable of monitoring insects has improved, it's become clear that several winged insects, including bogongs, sense and selectively choose which air currents to ride. Some form massive multi-species bioflows at high altitude. Radar has given entomologists a better picture of the little life that's gliding by far above us, what they've seen up there is frankly astounding. The spectacle of animal migration may be typified by the grandeur of herds sweeping across the Serengeti, but most terrestrial migrants are insects, by number of individuals and, perhaps more surprisingly, by mass. One study showed that each year in south-central Britain, two to five trillion high-flying insects migrate over an area roughly the size of Georgia. Together, those insects have an estimated biomass greater than that of the nation's migratory songbirds. Indeed, the volume of insects up in the air is so tremendous that researchers have suggested thinking of them as the plankton of the sky, constant particulate bobbing overhead. At the same time as our means of quantifying aerial insects has been upgraded, so too has our understanding of the impact of insect migration down on the ground. Large travelling vertebrates, including elephants, caribou and wildebeest, have long been known to link up ecosystems, transporting energy and nutrients, as well as pathogens, across the terrains they traverse, 
via routine grazing, defecating and dying. In recent years, it's become clear that smaller animals, in large enough profusion, can likewise leave a lasting impression on the landscapes they pass through. Upstream salmon rushes in British Columbia have been shown to pump nitrogen into surrounding forests, where fish carcasses fertilise fir, spruce and cedar, so much so that the tree rings record rapid growth in a banner salmon year. An animal does not need to be big to be consequential, does not need to be warm-blooded or a grazer to register in the very heartwood of a forest. The passing of mammalian herds and fish runs can score a landscape visibly by magnetising carnivores to an area, leaving torn-up vegetation behind, or creating a green wave where animal activities encourage plant growth. But though the movements of insects are more covert, over generations their transit can shape an ecosystem in equally durable ways. Very small beings have system-wide effects. Because many winged insects are pollinators, they create gene flows between plants that they alight on along the route of their journey. In Spain, for instance, endangered violets surviving in geographically distant islands of habitat are genetically enchained together by the migration of hummingbird hawk moths. Each hawk moth threads flower to flower. Trees along a 250-kilometre stretch of the Yugab River in Namibia have genetic linkages that flow with the easterly movements of fig wasps. Billions of pollen grains are shifted southward each year by high-flying hoverflies in the UK. Some lifted over the English Channel to the landing pads of flowers in Europe, a targeted haulage the wind alone could never achieve. Insect migration also acts as a resource pulse in environments where endemic vertebrates feed off migrants. An influx of migrants flies, beetles, butterflies, locusts, can intermittently decouple predator-prey dynamics, permitting prey that's low on the food chain, that is in many cases local insects, to rebound when those that eat them discover a more effortless meal of new arrivals. Many migrating animals trail their favoured weather conditions, though the bogongs must be one of only a handful of species to zero in on microclimates as pinched as those in the stony nooks that they seek. To trigger estivation, the moths need to find a protected place with around-the-clock temperature below 16 degrees centigrade, a chill that must remain constant for months. In a way, the moth's journey is not to the mountains, but to cupboards of air from a former geological age cold air which is found during the summer now only at very high elevations. How a bogong knows where to go, that is how a single moth intuits the existence of a microclimate hidden in the rocks hundreds of kilometres away, far above sea level, is a perennial mystery. It cannot have been taught by its parents, the way that foraging bees describe routes to travel via dance, a bogong's forebears offer no nurturance, no guidance, having died before the infant moth hatches into a caterpillar. 
If the homing instincts of swallows and sea turtles are astonishing, consider that a bogong moth makes its journey as part of a single generation, without elders, in complete naivety. Scientists have learned that the moths can apprehend the planet's magnetic fields and that they take their orientation from stellar cues, skills that are rare, if not unique, to the moth alone in the insect kingdom. Sometimes they fly against the wind to maintain their bearings, a determination that is especially startling when you consider how small a moth is and how powerful the wind. When the bogongs arrive in the Alps, mountain living mammals rush out to gorge on moth flesh, some with pink young in the pouch. Broad toothed rats dart about, so too Antichinus, a marsupial shrew, and the rare pygmy mountain possum. Birds binge, ravens especially. Feral pigs have developed a taste for moths. With evident cunning, the pigs remember the richest places to find them and wait there patiently for the moths to arrive, their clammy noses trembling. Nocturnal as the moths may be, the surge of the bogongs up the mountainsides has been calculated to amount to an injection of energy into Australia's alpine ecosystem that's second only to sunshine. If the bogong moths were once called a plague, it was not because they brought sickness. Rather, their influx frightened city people with its suddenness and incessance. A world of our design promised to restrict insect life to the margins, but having been besieged by moths, one could be forgiven for believing, however fleetingly, that our houses were less of a permanent fixture than the cascades of insects that cyclically, opportunistically sought shelter within them. That we might have been living in the moth's home all along proved an uncomfortable notion, one that implied we had less right to control what was excluded and what was invited in than we might have supposed. Whose world was this? Who belonged to it? And who only claimed the world belonged to them? Ideas like these were perhaps what the Belgian playwright and armchair entomologist Maurice Mantelink had in mind when over a century ago he wrote, The insect brings with him something that does not seem to belong to their customs, the morale, the psychology of our globe. One would say that it comes from another planet, more monstrous, more dynamic, more insensate, more atrocious, more infernal than ours. But then Mainthelink didn't live to see that the planet, more monstrous, more dynamic, more atrocious and more infernal, could in fact be our own Earth transformed. In the climate era, it is the disappearance of insects, not their efflorescence, that haunts us most of all. A global research review completed in 2019 found that 40% of known insect species are declining and a third are endangered. Countless insects have suffered a reduction in range, as well as numerousness, which is to say that, where they live now, many insect species also live less densely than before. In his elegiac memoir, The Moth Snowstorm, British author Michael McCarthy coined the evocative phrase, the great thinning, 
to capture this overall loss of bug biomass. Once common mini-fauna register today as exotic, hard to spot. People are more likely to assume endangered insects are interlopers, invasives, both because it's our habit to overrate our familiarity with the nature under our noses, and because those creatures that surprise us are, with increasing frequency, newcomers and novelties. Among those insects that are best able to pursue conditions beyond the boundaries of their former territory, driven along corridors of climactic change, some will be evolved by the journey, so that they end up not just out of place, but in altered bodies. This is true of the speckled wood butterfly in Scotland, which now displays larger wing muscles along the northward edge of its habitat, where warming is drawing the butterfly into longer flights. Of all insect vanishings, that of the bogong moth is remarkably, terrifyingly precipitous. Insects more typically die off where habitat disappears. Those species that are most at risk are specialists, with a circumscribed range and ordinarily small populations, that rely on limited food plants or are allied to threatened organisms. The rhinoceros stomach botfly can only thrive so long as there are ample rhinoceroses to parasitise. Colony insects, found living in hives and anthills, are additionally vulnerable to the spread of pernicious diseases and mites because they live in such close and constant proximity to one another. As to moths particularly, the traits that are shared by those taxa that have suffered the most rapid declines are large wingspan, low dispersal ability, short flight seasons, and a genetic phenotype that has become canalized, that is narrowed, with a fewer of the subtle perturbations that are seen in species that occupy multiple geographic sites. By all these measures, a bogong moth should be secure. Insects with wings, or those that bore into or raft upon portable vegetable matter, picture a coconut floating in the sea, are better able to leave hostile environments. A few can enter into a time capsule, as those insects that burrow deep into the woody tissues of trees to pupate can sometimes wait out the barren period after a bushfire. Insects that have historically maintained very big populations have long been assumed to be comparatively insulated from extinction. Indeed, monitoring plentiful insects not only presented a technical challenge in the past, but was considered to be of low importance, because models of decline held that organisms vanished at an observable rate, moving from abundant to sparse, from secure to threatened with interventions possible at several stages along the drop. What has happened to the bogong moth challenges that model of extinction and suggests that even very common insects can be at risk. The moth's habitat has not disappeared, taking the moth along with it. The mountains loom still, the plants the cutworms eat continue to grow in the fields. Bogong larvae consume wild capeweed and crops including cauliflower, silver beet, lucerne, flax and other cereals. Over the decades, agriculturalists have attempted to stamp out the larvae. With hellbore and parethium, then with Paris green, 
that is arsenic, mixed into sweetened bran, or with a pound of DDT per acre, and by running stock and passing heavy rollers over the earth. The moths survived it all. In the last 40 years, the southward expansion of rice and cotton growing in the Bogong's natal grounds along the Murrumbidgee River and in the Murray Valley has no doubt curtailed their range. Bogongs don't eat cotton and the moths can't pupate in flooded rice fields. But scientists estimate the impact of that agroeconomic shift resulted in the cull of about one-sixteenth of the population. A blow, but far from a fatal one. What has changed, what is changing, is that the topographic features of the landscape, coded into the Bogong's migratory instincts, are decoupling from the climactic conditions necessary for the moth to complete its life cycle. This is true at both ends of the journey. The emergence of a butterfly or moth from its pupae is called eclosion, and from 2017 to 2019, and in some locations for far longer, many of the areas where bogongs eclose were stricken by extreme drought. Temperatures climbed to highs with precedence seen only in models of a paleoclimactic hot spell two to three million years ago. The Federation drought, the World War II drought, even the Millennium drought all paled by comparison. In earth robbed of moisture, moth pupae were surely extubated by dehydration. Larvae had less to eat when the crops failed, and those robust plants that did endure were tended to more preciously. The diminished number of adult moths that departed on their migration would have returned to lay eggs under those same conditions, on fields ablaze with heat. In the mountains too, climate change is driving an uptick in temperature. Seasonal snowmelt in the Australian Alps has inched forward almost three calendar days per decade from a baseline set in the 1950s. Mountain living animals, such as Antichinus, which breeds beneath snow cover in winter and emerges famished, now confront a metabolic rift. As the snow inches back earlier each year, surfacing females encumbered with young discover that there is little to be gleaned just when they are most in need of calories. The gap may end up being too long to bridge when what moths there are remain on the wing kilometres away. So the changing weather is a force of disunity. The moth world and that of its predators break apart. Any life on the mountain that relies on the moth grows embrittled. Moreover, because raised elevations are always colder, than the foothills and plains, the effect of climate change on the mountains is to draw extant habitat upwards. Some plants and animals found previously in lower belts of country creep upslope towards higher altitudes, often moving into more crowded terrain as the surface area of a peak narrows into a summit. Organisms found at the tops of mountains face the evaporation of their domain into midair when apex conditions exceed their tolerance. For the bogong moths, this means that the coldest crevices are found today closer to the summit, while their ancestral bolt holes below grow increasingly unsuited to estivation. 
The day may yet come when those moths that are left fail to find the microclimate they need to rest. So the survival of the moths rests not just on the mountains, but on the atmosphere in which the mountains stand. The vanishing of the bogong moth betrays an invisible and global threat. Yet it is because the moths were once so abundant that their loss is palpable to us. That multiple populations of moths coalesced in the mountains, rather than remaining dispersed over a vast landmass, serve to dramatise their absence. Empty caves are an image the mind can readily latch onto. The fact that the bogongs once proliferated in places of work and residence, being too close for comfort, also made them memorable. Would their disappearance have been overlooked? Were they a less numerous, more cryptic species? What do we stand to lose when we lose the moth? The answer is many-layered. If their worth is as a traction, joining worlds, then migratory bogong moths need to be preserved in abundance. From an evolutionary standpoint, moving as a multitude permits an insect species to glut those predators that it can't evade, and to absorb losses owing to adversities like bad weather. With no intrinsic defence beyond camouflage, each bogong moth's safekeeping owes to the company of many more moths than appetite or attrition can account for. Beyond a minimum threshold, the moth gains new vulnerabilities. Some kindred insect species appear to require a set population size and density to be reached, a quorum, before they're pushed off whatever inner ledge holds them in place and start their migration. What liberates these insects from stasis is not intention or a move to action, but surrender to the vigour of massing together. Dwindling can therefore be a force like inertia. Is it absurd to imagine that, for insects and other animals, being deprived of migration has an emotional dimension? Between captivity and freedom, is there an apprehension of restraint? Of capture in a smaller sphere yet than desire fills? What is the name for this grief? Could it inhabit something so small as a moth? A few secluded populations of bogongs don't migrate. The non-migratory morph has paler hind wings and completes its life cycle in a different part of the calendar than its much more prolific wayfaring counterpart, a wan agrophobic sibling. Abundance matters too because rarity renders the migration's knock-on effects negligible or defunct. The migration's ecological consequences crumble where few moths undertake it. Though we customarily speak of needing to save a habitat to save a species, per those animals that move in vast numbers, the opposite is also true. The preservation of habitat, its energetic balance, pivots on the transient animals that pass through it. A depletion of migratory animals can be a force as atrophying as plunging the land into darkness. The bogong moth itself may not be beautiful, but it's a cornerstone of the beauty that's found in the mountains, where the moths pollinate flowers and nourish alpine biomes. And yet there's more at stake here than beauty. 
Upland ecosystems have downstream effects. The Alps are sometimes referred to as Australia's liquid lungs for their watershed function and because they filter rain running into aquifers that supply the cities. If the bogong moth, a keystone species, does not recover, the tattering of mountain nutrient cycles may reduce water quality elsewhere. To argue for shielding animal migration is to adopt an expansive definition of vulnerability, for it means not just protecting animals, safeguarding their mere existence, but maintaining their ways of being in the world and in relationship to one another. It can also mean attending to the commonplace over the seldom seen, to the maintenance of the unremarkable. Yet only the most cold-eyed ecologist would view an animal's worth as exclusively a matter of tabulating benefit to its surroundings, dependents and consumers. The moths don't just connect ecosystem to ecosystem. They connect people to people and people to the past. Indigenous owners of the moth estivation grounds are cognizant of the moth as a talisman for the country it enlivens, and of its pathways through the world as a more durable kind of knowledge than anything that's illuminated by data. One thing we all stand to lose if the bogong moth disappears for good is a feeling for our own smallness and impermanence. For even as each moth is turned about in less than a year, the flow that it belongs to is ancient. On a morning not long ago, as the city began to stir out of its own long inertia, I drove to Melbourne Zoo to visit the Butterfly House. In the queue, corralled along the zoo's perimeter, people fumbled to pull up vaccine passports on the government app, as zoo workers in car keys implored ticket holders to observe social distancing by keeping the length of a kangaroo between family groups, an interval soon collapsed by impatience. Children whooped up and down the line, while mothers traded glances of bone-weary camaraderie. As the clouds flew off overhead and the temperature began to climb, I wondered if the animals penned inside heard the hum of the crowd about to descend, and whether that noise aroused anxiety or anticipation in them. Had any of the zoo's creatures worried over where their spectators had gone and why they'd disappeared for so long? The butterfly house is steamy, with rings of rock melon on wire suspended from the trees, and hexagonal feeding tables with plastic florets where sugar water is set out. Around 450 Lepidoptera quiver on vegetation or on the feeding tables and thresh in the air. Almost all are butterflies, though there's one day-flying moth species among them, the Hercules moth, a few saucer-sized individuals very far from the tropics where they usually make their home. On the concertina of a palm leaf, two orchard swallowtails look to be mating, the fainter female like a sandy shadow beneath the male. There are no bogongs. To date, I have not seen one. So far this year, the mountains have not either. Yet it's hard to put into words the upswing of emotion I experience in the butterfly house nonetheless. I can't help it. To be surrounded by so much life, this fragile and ornate is overwhelming. An older man is frozen mid-step by a butterfly alighting on his forehead, 
on the spot notionally known as the third eye. A bygone name for Lepidoptera is psyche, a term that later denoted the soul. For a moment, I stopped to take stock of a feeling inside of me. Something moth-sized has taken flight within my body, a ricocheting brightness with an autonomy all of its own, a lightness that had eluded me all through the long second half of the year. As though these vivid insects, their presence, have broken something heavy within me into parts and made it available to catch on a breeze. Burgong moths are not social insects. Social insects, such as honeybees and termites, have a hierarchy and distribute roles to different individuals. What the moths are is massively gregarious, and what they're losing now is they're coming together. Denied to the moths is the momentum to densify, to persevere high in the overworld and endure ever more infernal summers by resting wingtip to wingtip. And yet some of the planet's most isolated insects have been restored by human effort. The butterfly house ordinarily displays one non-lepidoptera insect at intervals in a terrarium that's brought out from enclosures that are not open to the public. The Lord Howe Island stick insect, a bug also known as the tree lobster after its size, Considered extinct since 1920, a breeding colony of just 24 Lord Howe Island stick insects was discovered in 2001, clinging to the ground beneath a single shrub on a mid-ocean crag of rock, a sea mountain called Ball's Pyramid in the Pacific Ocean, over 600 kilometres northeast of Sydney. The two stick insects, the zoo named them Adam and Eve, brought to Melbourne by their discoverers, have since sired over 14,000 offspring. Though I'm told they're not on display today because people too easily forget the social distancing protocols when they gather around to view them. Are we in time to double back to save the bogong? The revival of the moth won't be so easy to secure, On Lord Howe Island, the stick insects were killed off by invasive black rats introduced by shipping vessels, a localised catastrophe. The plight of the bogongs, on the other hand, is entangled with the global problem of climate change. All migratory species depend on a series of habitats, sequenced conditions in those habitats, and the transitional spaces that provide passage between them. Such species are contingent on a far greater domain, replete with many more resources than is needed to supply the individual. A single insect might live off a tablespoon of nutrient. A dozen might occupy a shoebox without obvious antipathy. And though a bogong could survive in the butterfly house, the fate of its species hinges on weather patterns that encompass the globe. And yet... Hope resides in the insect. Having evolved to produce hundreds of offspring over a strategy of cosseting a few, each generation has the potential for mass depletion, but also replenishment. One adult moth can lay 2,000 eggs. In the wake of the IUCN listing, conservation advocates are now pushing for improved moth habitat within agricultural lands, 
offset by subsidies similar to those that are offered to some EU farmers for engaging in bee-friendly growing methods. Some reprieve also looks set to arrive with the shift into a La Nina season, historically wetter and cooler on the eastern side of Australia. My gaze returns to the butterflies when one lands on the back of my hand and pauses there, closing and unclosing like a pamphlet of inscrutable information. A voice piped over the speaker's warns visitors not to try to stroke the insects or grab for them. Even with the greatest of care, it says, a touch can hurt them. Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Calliopeia Foundation. Our original essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our theme music is composed by H. Scott Salinas. This podcast is edited by Ben Solitiano. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. To subscribe to our newsletter, order our new print edition, and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.